0: Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. uh, As Sirk said, we're talking about Jesus in the picture. So we've got a frame tonight. That's going to be our little sermon prop. But uh, you guys would get what it's like these days taking a picture and then putting it up online and trying to frame it and crop it get the right filters, you know, get the right captions, get the right hashtags, You know, all those different elements uh, to making a great photo happen. But the reason we do it, the reason we're so particular about it is because we all know that when we take a photo and we upload it and we crop it, we're trying to tell a very particular story, maybe about who we are, maybe about what we've been up to, maybe about just how we see the world. We use these things to tell people about us, about who we are, what we're going through, and what is in the photo matters. And let's have a look at a couple of examples because I think this kind of helps us understand and, and remember and realise the importance of how we crop our photos. So we, we see this Oh, I'm doing it again. Nice. I'm on fire. Did it this morning too. We'll chuck up the first photo. We'll see how we go. See this photo here? You look at it. Like, look at big picture, right? This is a mum and her two kids and dad, and they're at a nice big fair, and they're feeding the ducks. But for some reason... Mums cropped dad out of the photo. Now, I don't know whether dad was obviously distracted. He wasn't looking after the kids. Or maybe they had a fight. But in this moment, you can easily imagine mums trying to take a beautiful picture of herself and the kids and make a comment, maybe about her mothering and his lack of fathering, I don't know. Maybe about the fact that she just loves nature. I don't know what it is. But there's a story behind it. And we sometimes miss the bigger picture that it's a part of. We'll take a look at the next one. You can see here that in this photo, this guy over here is getting roasted by his friends. You can see old mate's pointing at him. She's got an opinion too. And I'll be honest, it's probably about his haircut. Look at it, like, (laughs) the shaved sides. I think he's gone a little too high. And he's obviously feeling a little bit dejected about the whole experience. Understandable, right? Like, when people pick on your haircut like that. But it would be easy for him to take this photo, crop it, and talk about how he's, like, reflecting on the weight of human existence, you know, just, like, how I reflect on my uni assignments, you know, like, all this kind of stuff. He could easily try and craft this image where instead of people realising his friends hate his haircut, he's making a statement about how deep and reflective and pensive he is as a person, you know? Like, it's easy to try and recreate a story, change it. If we go to the next slide, We'll see even here. You know, we've all seen these kind of photos where we're in a big volleyball competition and old mate has absolutely killed it. But this girl's being caught in the photo and she's trying to take a, you know, a bit of a highlight of the weekend, look at what we did. And this is the first snap, laying it on the line for the team, you know, like putting it all out there. But she missed it by a mile. Look how far away the ball is. She didn't even get close. But she's going to say that she laid it all out on the line for the team and, you know, it was such a wonderful weekend with the girls and we did so well, even though it looks like they're getting absolutely smashed. But she's going to tell that story, and she's going to crop the photo to tell exactly that. But then we see this last one. We see old oh, mate here, number five. He is uh, running the race. But what we don't realize is it looks like he's first, but he's actually cropped the photo so that you don't realize that he's second. See, if you actually go to the next slide, you see that <laughs> I'm actually winning that race. So he's, uh, he's just cropped me out for some reason. And I don't know why, but uh, see what we do with our photos changes the story. And so when we talk about this idea of Jesus being in the picture, we're talking about this idea of what are the stories, what are the what are the ways that we're framing our situations and circumstances, how are we framing who we are as a person, where does God fit in the picture in all of this, where is Jesus, is he like front and centre, is he off to the side, is he not even in the frame, you know, what are we telling? What stories are we telling? What is it doing to our perception of ourselves and how we relate to God, but also how we see God and what God is doing in our lives as well? And as Cirque said, over the next four weeks, that is what we're going to be doing, looking at stories from the Bible about people who had a certain picture, maybe of their life and situation, but also had a certain picture of Jesus and who he was. And so we're going to unpack what happens when Jesus really enters the picture. And so tonight we're going to start in the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 to 24. So if you have uh, got your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to open them up, read along, get them out on your phones, whatever it is, but but read along. We're We're going to attack this story in two parts. So we're going to start with verses 13 to 24, and then we're going to go from verses 25 to 35 a little bit later in the message. So we're in Luke, chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. And it says this. It says, Now that same day, two of them, them being some of the disciples who were uh, following Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, "'Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem "'who does not know the things that have happened there in these days?' "'What things?' he asked. "'About Jesus of Nazareth,' they replied. "'He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. "'The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, "'and they crucified him. "'But we had hoped that he was to be the one who was going to redeem Israel.' And what what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said. But they did not see Jesus. And as we stop here, we see a couple of things. Firstly, Cleopas and the other disciples had a very clear picture of who Jesus was. You know, it's ironic that Jesus is asking them what has happened, and they're explaining to him who he was to them. So they explain to him that they saw Jesus as a prophet, you know, powerful in word and deed, but also that they'd hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They would use the word Messiah, that he would be the Messiah. Now, if you're... Anything like me, maybe you've grown up in a Christian world. You know, I'm a pastor's kid of a pastor's kid. And you know, my grandpa was a pastor, my dad is a pastor, I'm a pastor's kid. I've grown up around church all my life. So I know whenever I hear the word Jesus is the Messiah, I go, Jesus died for my sins. That's like kind of what happened. He saved me, He's my Savior. That's what you mean by the word Messiah. But if we go back to first century Jerusalem, And you asked an Israelite man, what does the Messiah look like? What is the Messiah? Most likely, they would describe to you someone who would look like David. You know, someone, you know, a man after God's own heart. You know, a worshiper, loves God and wants to follow him as best as they possibly can. But also someone who is a mighty warrior. You know, think like a Gideon. Only needs 300 people to go and wipe out a whole nation. You know, someone who just like is able to overthrow the ruling powers of the Romans. But in all of that, they would be someone who would then eventually not just overthrow their enemies, not just love God, but would have the wisdom of Solomon to kind of like lead the land to peace and prosperity so that ultimately Israel would be the greatest nation in the land, that they would rule over others and instill God's kingdom through power. That was their view of the Messiah, So this was the picture that people had when they thought of the Messiah. And this is the people... Cool, we'll swap it over. And so... Come on, great. So this is the um, the picture that those people would have had. So Cleopas and the other disciple, if you're asking them who is the Messiah, this is what they're imagining. And so for them, they're trying to work through the fact that this has not gone as they have expected. You know, they... Were betting their whole life that Jesus was the Messiah, that this is what was going to unfold, and they're struggling to reconcile what has happened with what they expected. And you can see it clearly, that first line, it says that same day, in verse 13, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. Now, there's that phrase there, that same day. That same day is what, is the question you should be asking. The same day is what? Well, if you read verses 1 to 12, you actually see that the same day as Mary and the women going to the tomb, realizing that Jesus isn't there, having their personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus, that same day. To the same day that these women have just experienced Jesus' resurrection and they go and testify to that, to the other disciples, that same day, two of them decide to go to Emmaus. It actually says that everyone, in verse 9, that the women went back from the tomb and told the eleven, but none of them believed them. But we see Peter gets up and goes and runs to the tomb to try and see and figure this thing out for himself, Right? But these two disciples, they do something different instead. They go to Emmaus, a village that's 11 kilometres from Jerusalem, a two-hour walk. This is an intentional decision. This isn't just a, oh, we're just going to pop down to Emmaus, we'll be back in an hour. This is a we're leaving decision. You're not going to go walk two hours to then just come back with the shopping, you know, like that would be a nightmare. But they were doing this because they were disappointed They were disappointed, firstly, that Jesus wasn't who they thought he was. But then secondly, they were doing it because they were disillusioned. Disillusioned with the people that they were around. You know, Jesus has died. And these disciples and these women, their response is, instead of dealing with the fact that Jesus is dead, let's pretend he's alive again, right? Like, that's the response that you would have if you were in this situation. Imagine right now, someone walking into the room, you know, someone that's been dead for three days, and like, guess what, I just saw him. they're alive. You know, like, you'd be like, okay. Let's let's sit down. Let's pray about this. Can I call someone? You know, like we need to help this person out, right? Like that would be your response. And so they're a little bit disillusioned about this idea that this is how we're going to respond to the death of Jesus. Instead of just dealing with the fact that maybe he was another failed Messiah, we're going to pretend like he's alive again. And so for them, they're out. See, the road to Emmaus is not just a decision for them to just go somewhere different. They're not going for a holiday. This is a decision where they're saying we are walking away from our faith, we're walking away from the other followers of Jesus and we're going to go somewhere else and figure this out on our own. That is what they're doing. And this story, I believe, speaks really powerfully to our current culture. In fact, so much so that I found this quote by Belgian theologian Edward Schillebecks. It's an incredible name to try and spell. You can have a crack, but you'll see it at the end of the quote. But it says that uh, he was asked this question once. If you had to submit one biblical text that you felt named our faith situation today, what would that text be? His answer was this. The disciples walking on the road to Emmaus on Easter Sunday. He then went on to explain himself in words to this effect. See, the disciples walking towards Emmaus are deeply discouraged. Their once firm faith has been shattered, but they are walking with Jesus and yet are unable to recognise him. The situation of today's Christians in our secularised secularised cultures is basically the same. We are walking on the road to Emmaus, discouraged, our youthful faith crucified, crucified talking with Christ, but unable to recognize him. As adult Christians today, we often find ourselves living in the time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, when the God we were raised on has been crucified, but a sense of the resurrection has not yet sufficiently illuminated our imaginations so that we can recognize the God who is walking beside us. I think it's a pretty astute statement for many of us about our own faith experiences, the difficulties and the challenges that we're going to face. See, when I was 17 years old, I um, was a good Christian boy. I, As I said, pastor's kid of a pastor's kid. I lived and breathed church. I knew what all the right answers were to all of the questions in Sunday school and youth group. I knew how to be the good kid. And uh, I was going on youth camps, you know, like living it up, getting on that spiritual high over and over again, like, come on, like, let's live it up every holiday, some youth camp somewhere. And on one of those youth camps, I met a girl named Eden. And uh, she was a Christian girl. She was obviously coming on Christian camps. And eventually we kind of connected and, you know, love took, on, uh, you know, took off and we decided to start dating. And she was the first girl I ever said, I love you too. And, you know, all of that beautiful stuff that uh, a great teenage relationship is made up of. You know, lots of highs and then devastating lows, all of that kind of stuff. The emotional roller coaster uh, of those years. But in our relationship, there was a couple of moments in particular that were quite uh, difficult to navigate. The first was probably a couple of months in uh, to our relationship. We'd been dating maybe three months, but she lived an hour and a half apart, so we'd only see each other every two weeks or something like that. And uh, she called me one night, which was standard. We would call pretty regularly because of the distance. And uh, we had to use the home phones because mobiles weren't, like, super popular and it still cost a lot of money to make, a, like, a mobile phone call, so we'd just call on the home phone, uh, which was always fun. And uh, one night she calls me and she's like, look, Ben, I've, I've got to tell you something. I'm like, okay, sure, like, what is it? And she said, look, on the weekend, I was at a party. I had a couple of drinks, and I may have kissed another guy. I was like, oof, 17-year-old, right? Like, that's devastating. Like, that's, uh, whatever, right? You're like, why would this happen? But, you know, as a good Christian, you know you're meant to forgive people, right? So I'm like, obviously, this isn't ideal, (laughs) but I'll forgive you. (laughs) Let's not let it happen again, right? And she's like, okay, I won't let it happen again. Like, fair enough. A couple more months go by and uh, then I get another phone call again one night and she's like, look, I have something to tell you. And it's like, oh, great, not this sentence again. This can't be good. And so she says, look, again, I went to a party on the weekend, had a couple too many drinks and I kissed another guy again. I was like, oh, two, two times now. Like, it's like, oh, my heart. I can't deal with it. And while I look so tough with all my tattoos, I'm, I'm quite soft on the inside, right? So, like, it's like that really hurt. But I said to her, look, I play by baseball rules. It's three strikes and you're out. But that's two. (laughs) That's two. You've got one left, right? That's it. One left. And so things go pretty well for a while. And we're cruising along. And we get to the youth camp that we met at, right? We get to the youth camp that we met at about 12 months later. And um, we're getting there. We're hanging out. But things are weird. Like something's off. Like just something's a little bit ah, I don't know what it is, and I'm like, you know, her brothers are on camp for the first time, like, maybe it's that, maybe that's thrown off the game, then I thought, well, actually, I am pretty annoying, like, people tell me that regularly, so, like, maybe it's me, and she's like, great, five days of this guy, like, that's too much, I like that whole two weeks between visits kind of thing, like, maybe that was what it was, but we get to the end of the camp, and I have a one-day break between that camp and a second youth camp. Yeah, that's right. That's how much I loved youth camps. I was going on two back-to-back. I had a one-day break in between. She calls me that day, and she said, look, I'm so sorry that I was weird at camp. I was like, yeah, that's fine. Like, I get it. I understand. She's like, the thing was, on New Year's, I had a couple of drinks, and I kissed a couple of guys on the one night. I was like, whoa, right? Like, so you've got, like, it was like, the third, that's the third strike, but you've gone all out on the third strike, right? Like, you're not just like, oh maybe just one guy. It's like, no, I'll get value for money. I'll get all three or four guys at once. I know, crazy, right? But I couldn't deal with it. I was like, obviously overwhelmed with, like I said, three strikes and you're out. But you know, like I love you and all that kind of stuff. Now, obviously I hadn't read Jesus' thing about the seven times 70 times forgiving people because that's 490 and she had a lot more lives left still to go. But... Um, I said, I need a break, right? I, just, I need a space. I'm going to go on this youth camp. I'm probably not going to really talk to you. I need to talk to some leaders. I need to try and work this through because this is hurting, right? And while this story starts with this idea of how she's personally impacting me, it ends on this youth camp. And on the final night of cry night, if anyone who's been in youth ministry knows that <laughs> last night's cry night, we all know it. We're standing there, everyone's in tears, crying and singing about how good God is and how much he loves them. And I am getting increasingly agitated and angry. So much so that I have to walk out of the room and I go walk out into the bush. I find myself under a tree and I am yelling at God. Why would you let this happen? How could she do this to me? I thought you loved me. Why would you let her into my life? You have no idea how much this hurts. You know, like I am furious with God. I spent a good half an hour out there just having a go at God because of what had happened. Thought it was all his fault. And in that moment, to use the language earlier, the God that I knew growing up was being crucified. I thought he was kind, I thought he was loving, I thought he was gracious, but my experience in that moment, for some reason, was telling me otherwise. In the next 12 months, I stopped going to youth, I focused on other things, I let my heart get dark, bitter and cold, and I literally grew my hair out and dyed it black, just so people could see how dark and cold my heart was, right? Like. <laughs> but in that moment, I was leaving Jerusalem, and I was walking to Emmaus. What is it for you? Has there been a health diagnosis that leaves you disappointed and disillusioned with God? You are know, wondering how God could let that happen to you or your family member. And you know, maybe it's feeling a little bit hopeless and you're beginning to look to other things to console you. Maybe you're trying to find uh, strength and solace in your friends or in a relationship with someone who loves you. Or maybe it's just you're having a few more drinks than you used to at night just to try and get through the day. Maybe it's what someone else has done to you. It makes you wonder if God really loves you, whether the church really cares about you. And so for you, the question is, are you beginning to let distance grow between you and your church community, between you and your friends, between you and God? Maybe you've even never given faith in God a chance. Like you kind of hear because you've kind of done the church thing, but you're not really sure if you really believe it because of what you've seen, heard and experienced. You just wonder if it's something that you want to do at all. But I'm sure that there's some of us here tonight who are finding ourselves on the road to Emmaus because what you see in the picture right now is not much of Jesus, but a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, great sense of absence. And like I said, it doesn't even feel like he's in the picture. You are in Jerusalem and walk into Emmaus. But the great thing about this story that we've been reading so far is while these disciples are leaving what they've known, we know something that they don't, that while they're walking away, Jesus is walking with them. And so I want to jump back into the passage to see what happens when Jesus really enters the picture for them. So you want to jump back in, it's Luke 24, now we go on verses 25 to 35, and it says this, it says, he said to them, how foolish you are. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. And it was then that their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying it is true the lord has risen and has appeared to Simon then the two told what had happened on the way and how jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread it's an interesting story right because jesus has risen from the dead and we see now in this uh, in the ending of this uh, story that he's appeared to the women and apparently now we see he's also appeared to Simon Peter But while all the disciples are gathered together at one house, in one location, you know, all the other 11 and some, because obviously these two disciples were part of a larger group that were there, and the women were there, they were all gathered together. But Jesus, in this moment, chooses to meet with the two disciples who were lost, with the two disciples who were walking away, with the two disciples who were leaving Jerusalem and their fellow followers, but also when you think about it, right, turning their backs on Jesus, And when they're talking with Jesus, they literally say to Jesus himself, He was a prophet. Past tense. We had hoped. Past tense. The hope was gone. They did not have hope in who Jesus was anymore. See, Jesus went to meet with them. When you think about it, the strategic move is to go and meet with the other disciples. They've at least, in the midst of their confusion, stayed together in the hopes that maybe they'll be able to figure out what is the bigger plan that Jesus is a part of? What is actually going on right now? These two disciples have given up hope. They've walked off. They've decided they want nothing to do with it anymore. And Jesus meets with them. And I don't know if there's anyone here this evening who is telling themselves that in the midst of their doubts, their pain, their confusion, that God wouldn't want to be meeting with you right now because you're not loyal, you've got doubts, you're angry and you're frustrated. I want you to see in this story that it's actually the opposite. Jesus is walking with you too. Jesus didn't take the strategic move. He took the one where he was reaching out to those that he still loved and cared about, even though they were walking away from him. See, and it's more than that in this story. This is one thing that I think is so important for us as Christians and people doing the journey and life with others around us. See, in this story, Jesus doesn't try and convince them to turn around. He doesn't once say, hey, let's stop and let's go back. He actually walks with them all. All the way to Emmaus. He lets them continue to walk away while he's with them. He lets them continue to ask questions and engage in debates while he's with them. And I don't know about you, but I know that in the past I have had a tendency at times that when people seem to be going on their Emmaus Road journey, asking big questions, dealing with pain, frustration and hurt, I sometimes feel like I have to give them a quick three-point summary, th- three answers, three reasons why you don't have to worry about that. And if it doesn't seem to convince them, it's like, oh, well, I tried, right? I'm going back to Jerusalem. I'll leave them on their way. I'll be ready when they come back. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't say, hey, do you want to turn around? And if they don't, he's like, all right, cool, well, I'm going see you later. He stays with them. He walks with them. He does the whole journey with them. He even stays and eats with them. See, one of the things I love about this story and what I get out of it is that even when it looks like he'll leave them in Emmaus, he doesn't. Because Jesus isn't afraid of their anger, of their frustration, of their disappointment, their disillusionment, the questions that they've already asked and will continue to ask. And that same thing is true for you tonight. Jesus isn't afraid of your frustrations. He isn't afraid of your anger. He isn't afraid of the weight of hopelessness that maybe you feel uh, at the moment with whatever it is that you're dealing with. And you may not be able to see it. You may not even be able to feel it. But here's the thing. These disciples didn't know it and Jesus was still walking with them and he's still walking with you too. The challenge for us is that often we try and do whatever we can to avoid the Emmaus road. Right? We will do whatever we can to avoid the pain, to avoid the hurt, to avoid uh, the disappointment. It's sometimes why we hedge our bets. and sometimes why we don't take that risk on asking that girl or that guy out for like a date. You know, like all these things. We do these things and it seems trivial, but we do it to try and avoid the pain, right? But the truth is none of us are going to avoid this road. At some point in our lives, we're going to experience some things that are going to knock us off course. a relationship breakdown, a health diagnosis, series of financial events, something that happens in our career. We're gonna experience these things. And in those moments, we're gonna start asking those questions. Does God really love me? Is God really here right now? Where is he? It seems so absent. We're gonna ask these questions. We're gonna start this journey. The challenge is not whether you can avoid the Emmaus Road. The challenge is in your ability or inability to recognize Christ when he meets you on the road. That is your challenge. That is our collective challenge. Will we recognize Christ when he meets us on our road? Because as soon as the disciples were eating with Jesus and he breaks that bread, I don't know if you noticed this, he breaks that bread and they instantly recognize him and realize who he is and everything changes. They've walked away from Emmaus, a two-hour journey, right? And they've asked Jesus to stay for the night because they're like, it's getting late, You don't want to walk onto another town. It's it's getting a bit dark. You don't want to do that, right? It's probably not safe. And, you know, it's just not nice. Like, stay here, eat, relax, sleep, go on in the morning. But as soon as they realize that Jesus is alive and that they have just been meeting and eating with Jesus, it says that they immediately returned to Jerusalem. They were so excited and so overwhelmed by the experience. Hope so filled their heart that they couldn't stay in Emmaus any longer. They literally had to go right away. And they go back. They return to their faith community. They return to their faith. Their hope in Jesus is restored. And they hear the testimony of Simon Peter, who he himself had been trying to reconcile all that he'd heard. And then they came and shared the testimony of what God had done in their life too. How they had been in Emmaus. They were now back. In Jerusalem, See, Jesus entered the picture. There was one moment when all of a sudden they saw who Jesus was. And all of a sudden they realised that this whole time, when they thought he'd been out of frame, he was walking right next to them. And in that moment, it changed everything. Their sense of hopelessness, disappointment and disillusionment all left. And instead, hope was restored. See, when Jesus enters the picture. Hope enters the picture. Hope, in this case for them, that the Messiah had actually come. Hope for them and us that death has been defeated. Hope that something even greater than they had originally imagined was happening. And that same hope that existed for them then exists for you now. See, 18 months after I'd spent that night under the tree, yelling at God, I somehow found myself at a Bible college camp, right? Now, if you think youth camps are like, woo, Jesus times, like Bible college camps are next level again, right? Like they're just, everyone's there like, oh, I just want to do ministry and mission. So they're just like, yes, Jesus all the time. Like it's just nonstop worship. I don't even think there's food and those things. Like it's crazy, right? But I found myself there for some unknown reason. See, I'm still on my Emmaus Road experience. My hair's even longer and even darker. I've started to get tattoos and piercings. You know, like I'm a mess, right? Like obviously that's what's going on. But it's interesting, isn't it? And it's something that's worth noting, that people can be in church or be in Bible college and still going on an Emmaus Road experience. And that's okay. That's great even. But we need to remember that sometimes people are sitting here amongst us who are just struggling and wrestling and going through some difficult times, even when it seems like they're here every week, they're a life group every week, they're at our worship nights, you know, all these extra things, they can still be wrestling and struggling in the midst of that. But for me, I got to the last night of this camp, this Bible college camp, and this was my dinner with Jesus moment, right? This was where Jesus broke the bread and I realized, holy moly, everything is different. There was a lot that happened on this night, but one of the things that was really important was that through the whole 18 months, I'd felt like God had left me. In fact, I probably was being revisionist in my history and going, you know what? Maybe God was never in the relationship. I wonder actually how long God has been out of my life because he wouldn't have let this happen if he was in it. You know, like you start doing that whole thing. Of like it's not just these last 18 months. It's the 18 months before that. And maybe it's been five years. You know what? Maybe it was because I forgot to read my Bible when I was six that one day. You know, like he decided, no, I'm out. Like maybe that was the moment. You start just changing history because of what you're currently experiencing. And so when I was being prayed for that night, there's this one moment in particular where one of the girls I was in class with, she said, Ben, I've got a picture for you. I just want to share it with you. I said, sure, go for gold. She said, I feel like the picture is this. There were nights when you were in your bed, you know, crying and in tears. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, okay, that happened. I pretend like it doesn't, but it does, you know, like it happened a couple of times while I was sad about it. Yes. She's like, those nights, and you felt like God was completely absent and alone, and he didn't care about you or anything like that. I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I felt. That's what I thought. It's how it's felt for a while now. She said, the picture I got is that actually on those nights when you were lying in bed in tears, Jesus was sitting next to you, a hand on your shoulder, just wanting to wipe away the tears and tell you everything was going to be okay. And literally in that moment, it reframed things. All of a sudden, Jesus went from being out of the picture to back into the picture. What did it actually mean for my life if Jesus had actually never left? What if he was actually closer than he'd ever been before and I just didn't even realize it? What if I was going on the Emmaus Road and he'd been walking with me this whole time and I just couldn't recognize him because I let my disappointment and my disillusionment keep me from seeing him? Because as I've looked back over those 18 months from when it all blew up and I had that night yelling at God under that tree to when I had my meeting and dinner with Jesus, I can look back and see time and time again how he was walking with me through that. know, in particular, I had friends who were incredibly faithful and good influences in my life when I was a horrifically terrible influence on theirs. Whatever I could do to be disruptive and destructive was basically my aim. You know, like that was who I was. I wasn't, I wasn't a jerk for a polite term, for what I really was. I had moments where I was given opportunities to do things that would have drastically changed the trajectory of my life. And for some reason, for no real reason, I just said no. I got given the opportunity at the end of year 12 to go to Bible college. And I said yes, for no real reason other than I wanted to live with my best mate. And for some reason, I didn't drop out of Bible college halfway through and ended up on that youth camp because I just didn't care about it anymore. But I was like, well, I guess I'll go to camp. You know, it could be fun. But all of those things, Jesus was walking on the road with me, guiding me, answering my questions, giving me some guidance, even when I hadn't asked for it. See, that was when things changed because Jesus entered the picture for me. And I don't know what your situation is here tonight, but what would it look like if Jesus entered into the picture? In fact, what do you think his reaction is going to be to you maybe venting some of these things, asking some of these questions, telling him how you really feel or admitting that maybe you have been walking away? For many of us, you probably think he's going to be cold, calculating, angry, frustrated, disappointed in you, the same way you've been disappointed in him. But there's a picture painted by uh, Caravaggio called The Supper at Emmaus, and you probably see it on your, um, if you've got one of those uh, flies, but it's gonna be on the screen behind me. That I think summarizes pretty well who Jesus is and how he interacts with us on the road to Emmaus. I don't know if you can see it there, but the guy to his left is pretty animated. That's a double, that's an open, like double open arms asking a question. That's not someone who's like, Jesus what do you think about like he's he's pretty animated about it old mate there has got two hands on the chair he looks like he's about to stand up and go at jesus you know he's not happy about it either and old mate's really up in his grill i'm hoping that he's the server because otherwise he's really close as well but look at jesus in the midst of that does he look phased does he look angry or disappointed i feel like he looks pretty calm i feel like he's pretty content with their intensity, with their disappointment, with their frustration. I feel like he's okay with it. And I think that's how he's gonna respond to you tonight, if that's what you're going through as well. You know, maybe for you, you are going through that health crisis and you felt disappointed and hopeless and frustrated by it all. But what would it look like for you to find hope again is you remember that Jesus He's not just your healer, which gives you hope for healing, but He's also your comforter in the midst of the pain and the hurt and the struggle. You know, what does it look like for you when you realize that, you know, you feel like you're a long way from home? You feel like you're, you might be all the way in Emmaus and you're like, Ben, I don't know if there's another town past Emmaus, but I might be there. I don't know if that's a thing, but I might be there, right? You feel like you're that far away from where you would like to be. How does it give you hope to know that Jesus is your Redeemer, your Forgiver, He loves you and He just wants you to come back home. Maybe some of you are consumed by hopelessness about your career or your financial position or your future, but what does it mean to see that hope in Jesus is able to be had because He is your provider. He knows what you need before you need it. He's your sustainer. He's your strength. You know, He's your courage. He's all of these things because He is Jesus. And when Jesus enters the picture, hope enters the picture. So wherever you are tonight, I hope you realise that Jesus is with you. He's walking with you. He's closer than you can imagine. Hope is right there beside you. And you don't have to do this journey on your own. The last thing I wanna say is that there are some of us here tonight, you go, you know what, Ben, that's not my story right now. Great, I'm so glad. It's not, a, it's not a fun place to be, but we all will be there at some point. But I know there's chances that maybe some of you here tonight, you're not carrying that yourself, but you're feeling it for someone else. someone else in your life and on your heart, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, someone that you have been trying to just invest in, someone that you've been seeing going on that Emmaus road that you go, I just want to bring them back to Jerusalem. I just want to bring them back to faith, to their fellowship, to, you know, like Jesus. I just want them to know that hope in the midst of what they're going through. You've been carrying that heavy on your heart. I want you to know there's hope in this story too, that even when it feels like your prayers aren't changing, your invitations aren't accepted, none of that stuff's happening. Jesus is still walking with them too. In fact, Jesus is walking with them far more faithfully than you even are. Jesus is praying for them far more faithfully than you even are. Jesus loves them more deeply than you even do. You know, Jesus is with them. There's hope even in the midst of what they're going through right now. There's hope for you when you feel like it's a hopeless situation in how they're living their lives or the direction that they're going or their seeming consistent uh, refusal to engage in any conversation or anything about faith. So my encouragement to you is just remember to keep praying, keep hoping, keep believing because Jesus is walking with them too. And so tonight, what I wanna do to finish for us is uh, I, I, wanna, um, I wanna facilitate firstly a moment for you to spend some time with God because I actually think some of you need that under the tree moment where actually you need to have a little conversation with God personally, yourself. And then I'd love to create an opportunity after that for you to respond and come to the front and do this together. You know, this is a family. Hannah said it, I think seven times, which is a very biblical number. So well done, Hannah, for nailing that. But this is a family here. You know, we're doing this journey together. You guys might be in life groups with each other. You guys might be friends with each other. You know, like you guys, at the very least, are joined as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Like this is a family that supports each other and cares for each other. And so we would love to pray with you, to support you, to stand with you, to walk with you as you go through this season. But I wanna just create that moment first. I really do feel like there's this this importance for some people here tonight to actually just have a conversation with God that maybe you've been putting off. Conversation that maybe you've been avoiding because you're not sure how you're gonna say it without seeming furious and mad and upset. And I want you to know he's okay with it. So let me pray. And then I'm gonna just give a little space. PJ's gonna keep playing in the background just for you to have a conversation with God if you need to have one. And then we'll, I'll lead a time for us to, uh, to come down the front and respond and pray for one another. So Jesus, we thank you tonight. We thank you for the fact that you are walking with us. we have got to pray right now for those people in the room who just need to have a conversation with you, Lord, one that's pretty frank, one that might share some disappointment in you or some disillusionment with how life's turned out. Lord, where maybe they're frustrated about your seeming absence, Lord. I pray that you'd give them the courage to share that openly with you. God, I just pray that that conversation would be healing and, and helpful, Lord. So God, we just give you some space now to meet with us. May we spend some time connecting with you, Lord. Thank you for meeting with us right now, Lord. And I just thank you for those conversations that are being started uh, with you, Lord, where people are just sharing just how they're feeling, what they're going through. But God, I pray that hope would begin to break in in their lives. Lord, give them courage to continue to just share with you what's really going on in their hearts. The tough stuff, not just the good stuff, Lord. We pray this in your name, amen. Hey, let's stand to our feet. We're going to sing together. and um, But I would love for you to, uh, to come to the front. If that was you and you're going, yep, that's me. I'm dealing with disappointment, with disillusionment, a sense of hopelessness and frustration. You know, and you just feel like, I just, I need some people to pray with me. I would love some support and some care while I'm on this road. If that's you, I want you to come down the front. Like during this song, just come down the front. People are going to come down and gather. If it's a, if you see a friend come down, you just come down and you start praying for them, all right? But let's do it during this song. Like don't hold back. Don't wait. Just come down the front. Get prayer. Get support. Because that's what it's all about. We want to see hope break through and break into people's lives. I really feel like there's just this. The picture I get is that, um, you know, sometimes we come down to the front And it feels like, oh, we're coming down to meet with Jesus down here. But actually, as you leave your seat, Jesus is going to be walking with you the whole way down here. You're not coming down here to meet with Jesus. You're coming down here to say, I I need some support. I need some prayer. Jesus is already walking with you. Just come down the front as we sing together. We'd love to pray with you this evening. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.